Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. But when I say I'm Tony Payne, what we get at the other end is not I'm Philip Jensen, but... Marty Sweeney. Marty Sweeney from the US is here with us again. Philip is away this week as we're recording on the launch conference. Um, and we'll look forward to hearing all about that next time. But Marty, great to talk with you again. Always enjoy catching up with you. And I know our listeners all around the world do as well. Ah, uh, you're being kind. I'm sure not one listener has actually told you that, Tony, <laughs> but thank you. I'll take it and run with it. <laughs> do that, do that. So what's been happening? What's been happening in the great US of A? What's what's the news coming from? You're our correspondent from stateside. What's been happening? The North American correspondent. I like that. That's a good title. I've never uh, never had that before. I Well, I don't know if you know, but this is an election year. Um <laughs> It has Man, that Donald news has Trump's filtered running for president. It has filtered through that news, yes. So yeah, that's obviously often the headlines. But in the Christian world, yeah, there seems to be there's lots of encouraging things going on, but also more of the same. A lot of division at times, and lots of people kind of squabbling back and forth about all sorts of things. And some of it I take is really helpful because we want to continue to refine our thinking and our ability to to talk about Christianity with each other and with the world. Uh, but sometimes I get discouraged. <laughs> I don't know. We do manage to squabble with each other, don't we? And I don't know if you guys over there are more inclined to squabble or not. I don't know, culturally. I think you're probably, you're you're generally a more vigorous can-do, get-out-there-get-going kind of culture than we are. And maybe maybe you are more, certainly historically, you're more prone to church kind of division in the sense of, well, I don't like this church, I'm going to start a new one. Um you're more prone to that than we are. We tend to hang on for grim death until we absolutely can't do anything else and then uh, start something new. Um, I do remember, though, um, one of my favorite Christian magazine covers back in the day when there were Christian magazines that you got on your hand. There was a satirical Christian magazine called The Wittenberg Door. You remember The Wittenberg Door? And yes, uh, I do. Barely. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of their covers one year, they kind of like made fun of and had sent up and have a bit of gentle humor about the Christian scene and um, the Christian magazine. And one year they had as their front cover a picture of um, a world championship wrestling, like WWE, like a, a picture from one of those events. And you had this huge crowd in a stadium with lights and, and they're all obviously terribly excited. And the, the lights are all on this, on this ring. And in the middle of the ring, these two giant wrestlers are just, they've both sprung off the ropes and they're in midair about to grapple with each other. And the, the <laughs> caption on the bottom was Southern Baptist convention meets again this year. And um, <laughs> it, it always used to just, I think, yes, that's, that's sometimes the way Christian gatherings are. They're sometimes a fight fest yeah and i think you could substitute any denomination or gathering in there quite so uh, it's like quite the, so. it's like the old joke whenever i do anything uh in a, in a group and people always sit in the back and they say oh that's what we baptists do but you know i've been to presbyterian churches and they say the same thing so uh <laughs> i'd say it's the same truth here as well what are there any key, are there any sort of actually important or interesting discussions going on though and debates that you think are significant at present? Yeah, I think one that recently in the last, say, year is this issue of gospel centrality. I don't know if it's in, been in Australia, but for the last 15 years, I'm mostly really grateful for that what we maybe call the gospel-centered movement. And you can look in publishing and there's gospel-centered this and gospel-centered parenting and gospel-centered that, and all as a whole been really grateful for the kind of rediscovery, if you will, of the fact that 
yeah, we're not just, a, it's not a rule book for life, that the Bible is actually a book about Jesus Christ. Grateful for that. But there have been people who've pushed back and say, you know, the gospel is not the only thing that we need to talk about. We got to talk about other things. And to be fair to some of those people that I've heard, at least, they're thoughtful on this. It's not that they're saying we need to leave the gospel behind and move on, kind of a Colossians error, but they're saying that we need to have the gospel infuse all of our discussions. Oftentimes, this has been in relation to politics, that we can't just say, yeah, we're Christians, but we're going to kind of turn our back to our understanding of Christianity and vote however we want. So, yeah, there's been a lot of debate on that. Like that, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? And is that actually a helpful framework or shorthand for Christians to, to rally around? Do you mean in particular that sort of being saying I'm gospel-centered can be like an excuse not to really engage in social and cultural issues and the kind of cliche of the Christians who kind of huddle in their own group and... Um, and don't bother or don't think it's our place to engage in the social or cultural or political issues, as opposed to other Christians who think, well, that's actually vital if we're not if we're not making progress or asserting ourselves or in some way leavening or influencing the culture and the politics and getting involved in all of that, we're not being gospel-driven gospel enough. Is, is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's a way to describe best motivations is, listen, we have pretty strong disagreements, for example, Tony, maybe in, in politics, Yeah. but we don't want that to divide us. And so let's just be gospel centered and you can vote your way or advocate for that thing uh, socially, politically, civically, and I'll advocate for my things or keep quiet, but we can still be gospel centered and get on about the big, important things of Christianity. That's that's kind of best case scenario or best intentions, I should say. Sometimes it's used the other way of not wanting to, yeah, to have, or I guess the similar way of not wanting to be divisive. There's a good and true issue in the middle of all that, isn't there, about how far does the gospel cover or extend in ruling and determining our life? In saying that it's the center does that mean there are parts of our life that are on the periphery that the gospel doesn't touch, if you're going to use that metaphor? Or does the gospel send ripples out into all of our lives? And that issue is is certainly worth clarifying in our lives uh, and in our understanding of the gospel. Because, I mean, historically, there has been a version of the gospel that is a bit reduced or truncated in that way, isn't there? So where the gospel really is just about me and the forgiveness of my sins... Um, and my eternal life and having Jesus in my heart, but its implications don't then flow out into my whole behavior, into how I live my life. And in the past, you and I have had discussions about making sure we're really clear about the gospel, all those kind of two ways to live discussions we've had in the past about gospel clarity, where part of the strength of getting the gospel really clear in your mind is that it does prevent you from falling into that kind of reduced gospel understanding because the gospel of Jesus, if I can talk in two ways to live terms, it's not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which is the wonderful kind of heartbeat of it, but also just as much the heartbeat, he rose from the dead to be the Lord and ruler and judge of all. And that the call of the gospel is his call for us to turn back to him in repentance and receive the forgiveness of sins by the washing and rebirth of the Holy Spirit to receive that new life and that forgiveness and that justification from him as the living, risen Lord who died to make atonement for our sins. 
And so the gospel is a, that sort of box five of two ways to live, if I can put it that way. So the gospel is the proclamation of a living, risen Lord Jesus Christ before whom we repent and who offers forgiveness and new life. But the two come as a completely indivisible package that turning to him to receive forgiveness is turning to him as the Lord of all, which means our life finishes, we're crucified with him, our old life dies, and we're risen with him to a whole new life with him as Lord, Um, which is why the response to the gospel is not just trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's also repent and submit to Jesus as the Lord of your life and start living a whole new life in every aspect of your life that reflects the fact that you believe this good news, this extraordinary, great, fantastic, mega news that Jesus is the risen Lord of everything. Yeah, I mean, I've taught through Two Ways to Live in the kind of curriculum that you rewrote, Tony, called uh, Learn the Gospel a number of times over the last few years. And I think people have been very helped by the fact that they've seen that their gospel often has been reduced to box two, box four. You're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. And so what you're saying is really helpful because it is the it is the whole gospel. And as we've talked before, and you mentioned in that course quite a bit, that curriculum, when you look at the book of Acts of all places, you see that it's the gospel of the risen Lord that's proclaimed, not set against the gospel of the death of the Christ, but in the context of emphasis that he's the risen Lord and therefore we must follow him in repentance and faith. I guess the question though, though, is I think even a lot of people will be shaking their heads and, yep, I'm right with you. What does it mean to be live in repentance and faith as I vote, as I spend my money, as I, there are a lot of things that live in that gray or potentially gray, potential gray, that I'm not really sure what it means to live under the reality of the rule of Christ. I come from a reformed background growing up Presbyterian and trained at a Presbyterian college. And I had to read Abram Kuyper. What was his famous quote? Effectively, something like, there's not one inch of this world that's not under the lordship of Christ. What does that mean? I don't know. That's that. I think that's the debate, really. Yeah, I think that's right. It's why, in a sense, whether or not we're gospel-centered is a little bit of a distraction in that debate. Um, depends how you understand gospel-centered and what the gospel means. But if you understand the gospel as Jesus being Lord, crucified Lord, saving Lord, then our whole lives are offered as living sacrifices to him. And it, it does extend to every aspect of our lives. I mean, in the in the very chapter following Romans 12, where he says, by God's mercies, we offer our whole bodies, our whole souls as living sacrifices to him to be transformed, to live a whole new life. The very next chapter speaks of our civic obligations to submit to the authorities and to pay our taxes and to, it extends to every single aspect of our lives. And so the, the question then is, what does the living Lord Jesus say to us? How does he teach us we are to engage with every aspect of our lives? With how, how should we engage with the state and civic authorities? And what are his plans for us and his, his will for us? How would he have us live in that aspect of, in that social, civic, cultural, political aspect of our lives? And that then becomes a question of reading scripture together and applying what scripture says. So it's not sufficient to simply say, because the whole world is under Jesus' lordship, every square inch of it, amen, that therefore certain actions must follow, that we must, for example, um, take over the government as Christians and rule every inch of, of Australia in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whether or that is an implication of that or not comes from listening to what the risen Lord Jesus says to us in Scripture. That's his voice to us. That's his, that's his constant guidance to us. 
And then, so it then becomes a, a question that Christians are then often debated a great deal, of course, which is really, what's the status of Jesus' lordship vis-a-vis the lordships of this world, the kingdom? What is the status between those two kingdoms? And we're actually getting into a discussion of eschatology there, if I can use that big word, of, of whether the kingdom of Jesus will be built in this world gradually, 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 and until the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of Jesus. And that will happen in time and space gradually and steadily that's kind of like the post-millennial position or whether the the lordship of jesus will crash into this world and apocalyptically become the lord of this world in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and there are various versions of that position as well so really that that's the nature of the discussion then it's not then a, a matter of whether we believe the gospel is central or or not or is determinative of everything or not it's how we now listen to our lord and what he's calling on us to do uh, in those things. And that's probably how we should think about those things is probably the subject of a whole other podcast we could have. But it's it's is interesting and worth relating it to that gospel issue and seeing gospel clarity has something to do with it, uh, but it doesn't solve the whole question. So do you think the rapture is pre-mid or post-tribulation? <laughs> oh, I think it's I think it's time to bring out the old pan-millennialist joke. Pan, yeah. <laughs> it's all going to pan out They're in the end. all pan out in the end. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so Tony, one of the big things is that Christianity is not just, though it's important, the assurance that Jesus has died for my sins, but the knowledge and the new reality of, a say, a new life following him, listening to him, obeying him in the present time that he gives me in this world. And that takes a lifelong commitment to sitting under his scripture with his people, working out in fear and reverence our salvation. Absolutely. Uh, and so that's obviously really important. And, and I think that kind of leads to another similar discussion that we've been having here. You've asked what's been going on. And something you said to me a little over a year ago has been just kicking around in my mind. And I've been working it out with friends and thinking through this. Philip, dear Philip, wrote a book a little while back called The Coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's been really helpful and good. But when it when we were editing it and kind of reviewing it and trying to get it ready to print, you had said to me in a personal conversation that one of the reasons you really like the book is because it's not just kind of done in, which has been helpful, but a systematic theology way. What is what does the Spirit say? What's the Bible say about the Spirit in the Old Testament and then the New Testament? And then what do we make of it? But it starts with the gospel, and in, in, in this case, John, what's the gospel say about the Holy Spirit, the gospel of John, and then working out from there? And in other words, you said that the gospel is the organizing principle of all scripture, and therefore it needs to be the organizing principle of how we come to understand something like the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I've been thinking through what that actually means, and so maybe it's just a good time to ask you, what, what did you mean by that, that the gospel is the organizing principle of scripture? I guess what I'm really meaning is that Jesus Christ himself is the center and interpretive key of all of Scripture, because that's how the Bible presents itself to us. It comes to us as a big unfolding history of God's work in the world, starting with creating the world and finishing with the new creation and the the heavenly Jerusalem uh, coming down. Uh, And in that huge unfolding story that God has given us, the climax and centerpiece and fulfillment of the whole story, the denouement of the whole story, is Jesus Christ himself, in whom all the promises of the old are yes and amen. And so the Bible is not a flat book with just a series of chapters that could be organized in almost 
any way in much the same like the the Quran is organized if if I remember correctly from the biggest chapter to the smallest chapter yeah whereas the Bible has an historic shape to it corresponding to God's work in our world culminating in time and space culminating in history in the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming in his incarnation in his life and death and resurrection in the pouring out of the spirit and the preaching of the, of that gospel of Jesus Christ that we just described to the world in the power of the spirit and effective in the spirit. And what Philip, you know, it's one of those kind of genius moves that's really obvious when you when you say it. He basically said, look, if that's the shape of the whole Bible, the shape of God's revelation to us, if it centers on Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus, then we read everything through that lens. You can't read anything, you can't read the Old Testament as if it isn't heading there and fulfilled there. And so let's start at that moment. Let's start at the moment when Jesus says, because of who I am and because of my death and resurrection as the Christ and the Messiah, I'm going to pour out the long-promised spirit on his people. And so Pentecost, Acts 2, becomes this supremely significant moment when all the plans and promises of the old are fulfilled. And you can understand everything that's been happening in the old as, as leading up to this point when the risen Messiah pours out his spirit. And so to start there and to say, if we're going to understand the whole Bible about the Spirit, let's realize that this is where it comes to its, this is a fulfillment and climax. And so just as you can do that with the Holy Spirit, in many ways, we're talking about what's sometimes being called a biblical theology way of reading the Bible, reading the Bible as an unfolding work. But what biblical theology means, it doesn't just mean going through each part of the Bible and seeing what it says on its own terms. It means seeing that the Bible is a unity that comes to its fulfillment and focus in Jesus Christ himself. And since we've just been saying the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus the Christ, the crucified Lord, the risen Lord, the one who atoned for sins, the one who now will judge sins as the Lord of the universe and to whom we, we submit and bow and who gives us new life. Given that, that that's who Jesus Christ is, then to say the gospel is the kind of organizing principle of Scripture is really just to say that Jesus Christ in his person and his work, what he did and who he is and who he now is and what he's done, that's the central thing that kind of organizes the whole biblical wonderful story or drama or history. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, there's lots to work out from there, even back to our previous conversation about what that means to live in this world with Christ as Lord, but also with Caesar as Caesar, <laughs> or, or um, Joe Biden as president, um, or what have you. Uh, lots to work out. Maybe my question back then is to, you know, I think we can draw to the close here. Okay, I'm convinced. How do I help the average person in my church get this? Like, how can I show them? I remember early on in, in ministry, I had a, a senior pastor tell me very wisely, he said, don't just preach Second Timothy about the Bible as the inspired word of God show it to him and how you and how you preach week in and week out. And it's similar here, like I can go and tell people that the gospel is the organizing principle of scripture, but how does it show itself when I lead a Bible study or talk with someone about a topic? Could you leave us maybe with a few pointers? Sure. Big topic, but a few pointers. Tips, five tips from Tony Payne <laughs> on being gospel centered. That's what I want. <laughs> it, it fundamentally means keeping that frame or shape in our minds of the whole as we read and think about each part. It means when we come to read any passage in the New Testament, say we read a passage in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 about the Holy Spirit, since that's what we're talking about, 
that we recognize, hang on, it's we can't just look at this in on its own. We've got to see it as part of a bigger story. First of all, in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a fascinating and, and great example because 1 Corinthians as a book is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It starts with the death of Jesus in chapter 1 and finishes with the resurrection in chapter 15. And it frames the whole argument of Paul and all that he's saying that in a sense, our whole life and our experience of uh, of living as one of Jesus' people and our experience of the Spirit, our experience of church, takes place between the death and resurrection of Jesus, between Jesus dying and rising as Lord and his coming again when we'll all be changed in chapter 15, uh, the great resurrection day at the end of time. And so in one sense, it's a, a matter of good reading and teaching and modeling that, whether it's in our Bible studies or in our sermons, that we're constantly... Um, seeing the gospel as the organizing reference point that shapes the way we're reading any particular chapter of the Bible. Of course, it applies to the Old Testament, so that when we're reading the Old Testament, we read it looking backwards. We read it as spirit-filled people in the New Age. So we read it um, from this side of, of Jesus Christ being the risen Lord. And it's really important to teach and preach the Old Testament, um, showing both how it um, points forward to Jesus, but also how it constantly provides examples and encouragement and, and hope, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, for the life of those who now live in the fulfilled age, in the in the age to come, uh, the fulfillment of the ages. And so I suppose I'm saying in many ways, Marty, it's good Bible, good biblical theology practice, good Jesus-centered Bible reading, whether we're preaching or whether we're, whether we're reading each particular passage. It's a matter of continuing to do that over time. I think you can pull people aside and you can do a Bible study that particularly teaches this, kind of get them thinking about these issues. So I'm thinking about a study that Bryson Smith wrote years ago called Full of Promise that Matthias Media sells that I still think is an excellent way of showing how the whole Old Testament just lands with Jesus. It kind of shows it from that point of view. And so you can show people this big picture and teach them that, and that really helps them. In many ways, that's partly what we're wanting to do with Two Ways to Live, interestingly, as well, in the sense that Two Ways to Live is a really brief schematic picture of that whole story of creation, sin, Mm. judgment, Jesus. And so it it does give you a shape and a pattern to keep thinking about. So if I could pull that together and maybe say it back to see if you would agree. First, we need gospel clarity. Yep. So back to the first part of our discussion, we have to understand the gospel is absolutely about Jesus's death and atonement, but also equally as important, his resurrection and lordship. So that would be kind of like first principle to to work out how to read Jesus through the lens of Jesus through all scripture is to get clarity about the gospel. And then from there, we never leave it. And this is kind of back to the Colossians issue for different reasons, but effectively like the teachers, whatever they were saying, were like, you learn that Jesus, but you can move on from that. As, as Paul says in his famous summary statement there in chapter two, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in the faith in him. And so we would never leave that behind. But I think that where the, the critique of this idea has been, has been it's a misunderstanding. You think we have to kind of conclude every Bible study with Jesus died for your sins. And that's not what you're saying either. If, if anything, it's, and let's keep following Jesus as our Lord at, because he so graciously died for our sins. And we keep following, live for him who are for our sake died and was raised. Yeah. 
every Bible study, in a sense, will finish with some gospel application in the sense of it might help us understand sin more deeply, the sin that we've been rescued from. It might help us understand, picture, and grasp just how huge and wonderful the atoning mercy, love, and grace of God is in Christ to, to send his son to die for us. It may help us to understand something more of the risen Lord Jesus and and his rule. It might help us to understand of the God who created the whole world and whose wonderful plan this is and who comes to his fullest visible expression for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's, who's the very radiance of his being. And so the more we understand Jesus in the gospel, the more we understand God, because Jesus is the one who fully reveals God to us in that sense. Um, and so each passage, which may also then, and I'm sort of, you see, I'm sort of thinking through the boxes of two ways to live here. It, it also may then show us what does the repentant life look like as one of Jesus' people, as someone who's now submitting to him. And so uh, very often, the in, in, depending on which part of the Bible we may be live, we may be reading, it'll almost always show us something about the good works that he has purified and redeemed us in order that we might be zealous for, as it says in Titus 2, that he's, he's brought us together as his people to live under his lordship so that we are a completely different people. And often, often scripture will be showing us what that looks like in all of our lives, as, as of course the rest of Titus goes on to talk about in all sorts of different ways, coming right back to our discussion at the front, including our cultural life, our social life, submitting to authorities, showing perfect courtesy to all people, uh, because we too were once foolish and lost. And so uh, just like them, them. we're all the same. So the gospel will inform our whole attitude and stance towards the world and its culture in every aspect of our lives. Mm. Tony, I I could probably spend another hour thinking about this with you, but our time, you know, has come to an end here. I think, but it might be good to think through and maybe get some listeners to ask questions because no doubt we have just scratched the surface on this topic. But it's a I don't want to just say it's a fascinating one; it's an essential one. What does <laughs> so, it mean? It is. Uh, it is. Yeah. The implications of what it means to have the gospel at the center of everything, and for the gospel to be. That is for Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and the proclamation of him to be at the center of, of our, not just our lives and churches and our whole character, but our whole life in the world, the way we read the Bible, the way we do everything. Yeah, we could talk about that forever because it, it touches on everything. But it's been good to talk today, Marty. Thanks for zooming in and having this conversation. Well, as you said, Tony, I believe you. I have worldwide fans because of this <laughs> two ways news. So I don't want to disappoint them. So thank you. <laughs> well, you haven't disappointed. And why don't you close by praying for us? Thank you. Precious Father, we do thank you for this time, and we thank you that we could think about such great, wonderful things. The fact that Jesus Christ, the most wonderful man, and the God who came to be, be one of us, is the risen ruler, is the one who was so merciful and kind and yet so powerful and great. Thank you that he is Lord, and we pray, Lord, that we will honor him with our whole lives and all that we do and all that we think, that all that we aspire to and so, Lord, help us to live under his uh, lordship. Help us to be uh, compel us by your love uh, so that we can live for him who, for our sake, died and was raised. Bless us, Lord, this way so we may be a blessing to your great name. And in that name we pray. Amen. Amen.